0: Chris, one of the pastors here. Um, Thanks so much for being here. If you're brand new, uh, welcome to our church. Glad to have you. Uh, We are in a series right now, Sermon Series Wise, in the Gospel of John. We've been here for over a year, and we'll finish sometime after Easter. It's looking like May sometime uh, right now. It's a little bit of ways to go, but uh, we're in that segment of the book right now, in the Gospel of John, where it's right before Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. Uh, We sometimes call this the farewell discourse. Uh, It's right kind of uh, during but right after the Last Supper and when he washes the disciples' feet and uh, has his own kind of teaching there as well and some gospel embodying actions. But right kind of after that, through uh, chapter 17, uh, we call this, you know, the farewell discourse. He has some things to say about himself and about sin and about humankind and about God and about the coming kingdom and uh, the nature of the gospel itself, of course, before he kind of signs off, uh, so to speak. And so um, that's where we are today. Uh, today we are in uh, John 15, 18 to 16, 4a, which is like the most confusing, uh, you know, um, rever- chapter reference or verse reference like ever, but uh, that's or what we're, we're going to do today. Uh, look at this theme of being hated like Jesus. So was a darker twist on the farewell discourse today. This is when Jesus just kind of like dives headlong into uh, hate, he, it, this theme of um, how he is hated by the world and how Christians will uh, more or less be hated enduringly. Like, that's just part of what it means to be a Christian, uh, no matter what. Like, no matter what part of history you live in, what part of the world you live in, um, it, it's going to be shaped differently, but that's just kind of part of reality. And Jesus is like, you just need to know this for a variety of reasons. Uh, we'll touch on, hopefully, most of them today, at least some of them uh, today. So, uh, John fifteen eighteen to 16, 4a. Let me read this whole thing to start, per the usual here. Um, Jesus speaking to his disciples, uh, starting verse 18. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. All right, so a lot of what Jesus is saying here, kind of uh, going off that last verse, um, I'll just say this to start. Um, there, there's kind of, sometimes when uh, something dark is coming or there's um, something really painful ahead, uh, the surprise is a big part of the anxiety. And uh, Jesus is kind of like trying to head that off. He's saying, like, I'm telling you this ahead of time. I'm God. I know the future. I've written it. I'm already there. And I'm telling you this is going to happen so that when it does come, you know that I've kind of been there with you. This is not like, um, some massive left turn out of, out of nowhere that I didn't foresee. And so there's a lot, a lot of like, that's not the only thing he's saying here. We'll come back to more kind of consolation that he has for us, It's kind of the big part of what he's ending with here at least. And we'll kind of pick up next week with uh, some more of this sort of. Um, all right, but uh, kind of a darker twist, right, on the farewell discourse. We, I was studying this with um, the other pastors and our wives on Tuesday, and we're all kind of like, you know, um, whoa! What a you know cozy. Let's cozy up to this one with a cup of coffee under the Christmas tree. You know, it's uh, not exactly uh, uh, maybe the first thing you think about in terms of the Advent season, but but it is kind of Adventy. It's it, there's always Advent everywhere. It's just you have to work for it sometimes. Uh, the idea Advent just being the idea of the arrival of God into the world and and, and all of that. And we'll talk about that a little later on. Uh, what I want to do today though is break this down into two sections. One kind of just go right into this question of why are Christians hated, maybe how they are as well a little bit, um, though we could probably talk all morning about that. I, I think it we just kind of have to talk about it um, a little bit, and so we're going to do that, but then kind of come around full circle to what I was kind of already saying with, with how Jesus consoles people who are getting some bad news or getting some tough news or some, oh man, the future's going to be hard at times. Not always, not every day, but at times it's going to be really hard, and, and I might be killed uh, in fact, we know most of the disciples, based on scripture and tradition, that most of the disciples were brutally murdered, brutally killed, in horrific, excruciatingly painful ways uh, just for being Christians. And so, like, this is actually like, on their side of things, at least, this is uh, you know a big part of this. It's not even like first and foremost about us, it's kind of initially about them, these 11 men that Judas left, uh, uh, who is going to betray Jesus, but the, the remaining 11 are going to die horrible, horrible deaths. So, But I want to start with this question, though, of um, why are Christians hated? Again, maybe kind of how, the how as well. And and some of this will be obvious. This is not exhaustive. Uh, Some of this won't be obvious, though. And and I think, but again, getting at the why behind the what of the hate, you know, helps us to get to theology, I think, all the clearer. And so, and in one sense, it's it's a complicated thing because to address, you know, this question uh, is, uh, I think, in one sense, to kind of acknowledge that Christians can be hated for. Um, being jerks you know sometimes you know Uh, like some of you guys have had church hurt um, and that's a real thing and it needs to be acknowledged and many of you have experienced it and it's almost another conversation though all together but that's a part of it Um, you know first Peter says says somewhere in first Peter uh, Paul Peter writing to Christians that um, you will suffer for many things one of which but what, what you should not suffer for is doing wrong uh, is, is doing evil, because we suffer for that, you know, in different, different ways sometimes. And so he's saying, that's not what I'm talking about. Then he talks about, like, the things you should suffer for uh, as Christians. Um, and so I think even the Bible kind of raises this, this thing. Um, so it's kind of complicated. We have to kind of acknowledge stuff like that. Also, maybe things like um, misguided things or untrue things, like, uh, oh, all Christians are anti-science, and so, therefore, I dismiss them or kind of hate them or persecute them. You know, that's actually misguided because it's just not true. Um, You know, for Jesus is an anti-science. Not all Christians are that. In fact, two of our pastors here are like scientists (laughs) or teach science in school. And so, like, we see synergy. Most Christians, I think, throughout history have. Um, Galileo and Copernicus, you know, were Christians, I think, right? At least they they are approaching this whole thing from a Christian worldview. And so even though the church was kind of like, whoa, what, you know, the sun's there, um, it was actually a very Christian thing that they kind of discovered uh, because we're not the center of the universe. Actually, it's uh, God, and he's more like the sun than we are. Um, anyway, uh, all, that, all that to say, there's things like that, though, too, that might lead still to hatred or persecution. Um, but those things aren't really in focus in, in John 15. The, 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 the type of hatred he's referring to is grounded in the person of Jesus. Jesus' logic is, as I am hated so will you be hated. That's his flow of logic. Like, in the same way I'm persecuted, um, you will be. And so, uh, and we'll come back to some of that. But, but I think from there we can move into a second tier of things like uh, Christians are hated for things like their views on sexuality and gender. Um, and the consequences, you know, there are consequences that today increasingly come from upholding a traditional view of these things, including a biblical definition of marriage or even just the broader notion of how we cannot choose our gender, uh, it's given by God. We we can't decide that or choose that. Even just that alone is extremely offensive. Uh, increasingly so to many people, not all. Uh, and th- again, but broad brush, broad brush. This is um, this I- this is a part of it. Also, maybe the exclu- exclusivity um, of uh, I don't know the list you're going necessarily kind of a catch-all thing there, but the exclusivity of how we view salvation. So Christians. Believe there's only one way to be saved. Uh, the world's a very pluralistic place. Uh, it's very uh, what your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. There are many ways to be saved, uh, but Christianity Jesus isn't like that, and Christians, broadly so, historically, uh, predominantly at least, are not, or shouldn't be. If they are, they're wrong. But um, but for people who have a hard time saying any that anyone's wrong, uh, Christians won't exactly be adored because. We don't think that way. We believe people can be wrong, ourselves included. Um, and so, but also in this tier would be, I think, uh, things like, um, uh, I was talking to my wife a bit about this this week, but just this, like, idea of how quick we can be to forgive. Uh, Christians are hated because of how forgiving we, we can be, even towards the worst of cultural sins. So think of, like, whatever the, like, the, the culture says is the worst of people, the worst of things, Christians are like, we love you. It's okay. And not just we love you, God loves you. Uh, come, come home uh, to him. And that's a very, you know, again, it depends on like our view of like justice and right and wrong, but predominantly so. That's a very, uh, very tough thing to swallow. Uh, you know, when, when cancel culture was raging, maybe it still is, people talk about this anymore, I don't know, uh, but when it was for like two seconds, uh, Christians in general pumped the brakes on that. Um, because, we, because of our theology of sin and our, and our theology of different things we, in our, our own heart. We, we just know that um, it's just like our view of the world and, and the Bible and who God is. We pump the brakes on that. Um, illustration of this would be, uh, do you guys remember, man, it must be like five, six years ago now, but there was this AME church in, in Charleston, South Carolina that was, was shot up on a Sunday morning. Remember there's A shooter that went in and shot a bunch of people. Um... And then, so it made the news for that, but it also made the news for when the, the the victim's families were in the courtroom with the shooter and they publicly announced forgiveness of this person in the name of Jesus. They said, we forgive you for killing our kids. This isn't like, oh, I forgive you for accidentally stepping on my toe. That's not really forgiveness, you know? It's just like, oops. This is like what I'm, This is what we're talking about. This is like, that's a... That's a level of forgiveness that the world isn't exactly like, has warm fuzzies for. Because that type of forgiveness throws a wrench in the gears of what we think is right. And all of a sudden we're like, whoa, no, we want punishment. We want justice. We want vengeance. And Christians historically um, haven't operated that way as much. Not that we don't believe in that, it's coming. God is coming back, right? We believe in the, in the writing of all wrongs and all of that, but there's also this tension of like we don't we don't think that way. Jesus doesn't operate that way. He forgives the adulterer, the adulterer in John eight, right? We've already been there in in this series. Uh, it also made me think of um, uh, David and Joab uh, in the book of Second Samuel. You guys read this before um, this morning? All of you, I'm sure you did. No, um, D- David, King David in the Old Testament. Um, was uh hated a lot as as a king um he even by his own family absalom his son started a coup against him he had a bunch of people that that despised him tried to stage all these things against him joab was david's uh uh he was the the commander of his army basically and joab was the guy in the story who kind of said over and over again david uh he was always right there in the front saying i'll go and like when David like, got the throne back or something, Joab was like, I'll go and exert judgment and vengeance on your enemies for you. Those people that wanted you. One of them was his son, Absalom. Uh, I'll go kill them for you. And David's like, no. Uh, he would have none of it. D- David's the king who was, had tons of restraint. That was unfair and radical and offensive. It was a type of like love and grace that he showed to his enemies that and, but here's the thing. Then the issue, though, came not just bet- between Joab and David's enemies. The issue became between Joab and David. Then Joab was like, David, how can you be so kind? This is unfair, and you're not being a good king if you're not destroying your enemies. And David said, I totally disagree. I greatly disagree, you know, uh, there. And then Joab just had a hard time with that until eventually he died. He has his own story arc, but... Um, so I feel like that's a, a big a kind of narrative too that speaks to this uh, in, uh, in, in the Bible. And that all leads to this kind of last tier, I'll call it a third tier of things, uh, and I think the last and greatest thing in terms of this question of why are Christians hated, kind of relates to the David and Joab thing, um, but really ultimately it's because we worship Jesus Christ who claims to be God's son, who is the capital T Truth, who exposes all lies And for a world that loves lies and for wearing masks and covering things up, uh, that's a problem. Um, And so, because we preach him and we worship him and we believe he's God's son, not just a guy like us who taught us how to live a good life. Um, And relatedly then, because of how much we emphasize his relentless grace and how grace then serves as a wrecking ball uh, to people's worldly, or just say uh, uh, any kind of non-Christian worldview is going to have problems with the theology or doctrine of grace, kind of like Joab did um, with, with David. Uh, and we know this is the case because this is why Jesus was hated. So I want to start there just for a second. This is a, basically a 15-second recap. But if you think about this, um, when Jesus is saying, as I'm hated, so will you be, this is how we're defining this. Jesus was hated, even just in the Gospel of John, Jesus was hated because he did things like broke the Sabbath. Uh, John 5, and he called people to rest now in him rather than the law, rather than one of the Ten Commandments, which said keep the Sabbath. He's drawing people away from that to himself. Um, He was hated because he forgave the adulterer instead of stoning her to death. Again, also circumventing the law. The law said stone to death people who commit adultery. Jesus says, no, I'm not upholding the law. I'm breaking with it to give grace. You can't do both. And so he's, he's bringing a New Testament into history that showed grace uh, rather than vengeance. Um, he hung out with Samaritans and prostitutes and Roman centurions, tax collectors. Again, much to the chagrin of the Jewish religious law-following elite. Uh, because the law, the law separated these types of people. It didn't allow for the good and the bad uh, to connect. Um, it commanded the opposite, actually. Including us, it actually drove a wedge between us and God. But when Jesus came, he did away with the law and in its place, he brought his bloody body to bring us back to God, forgiving our sins and secondarily to bring us back with people that we used to hate or that used to hate us. That's the idea. And so if you reverse engineer the idea of, wait, why is it a big deal that Jesus is hanging out with uh, Romans and Gentiles, non-Jews, unclean people like prostitutes or tax collectors? Uh, The idea is it's not just, oh, this kind of, radical whatever thing to do it's actually like theology, deep theology it's saying that's not possible under the old covenant system but because he's bringing a new testament now that's built on his works not ours everything changes but it's offensive this is what but the fairest the point is to all of that this is just a sampling but the, the point is um this was why he was wanting to, people wanted to kill him for these very things because he's showing grace we also see this in the book of Acts as well, when the gospel is first going forth into predominantly Gentile territory after Jesus' resurrection. What tends to start the most riots or cause the most dismissiveness to Christians is the message of grace. How Christians call people away, not just from evil works, because that's not offensive, but their good works. They call people away from the good they were doing Because they were worshiping that instead of God. And their goodness was keeping them away from God, not just their badness. And how they insisted that it wasn't the, quote, unquote, works of our hands, which comes up a lot in the book, that saved or or that mattered, but Jesus' works. Uh, It's precisely why Stephen was murdered in Acts 7 uh, by the Jews. And it's also precisely why the riot in Acts 19 started in Ephesus. Ephesus. This is exactly the phrases, the works of our hands, that make people seethe in their mouth. It says at, at the end of Acts 7 that they ground their teeth in pain and anger when they heard Stephen say, God doesn't live in your temples. God doesn't live in the works of your hands, what you have done. This is Tower of Babel stuff, basically, if you know that story. And they, they ground their teeth and they, they killed him uh, for preaching that. How dare he say that we're not good people? How dare he say that we're not close to God based on our law law following uh, and our, our obedience to him? How dare he? And they stoned him to death for it. The riot in Acts 19 too. It actually goes all the way back to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. If you know that story too. Cain, they're brothers. Cain was a man who thought much of himself. He was arrogant. He thought much of how he had worked Hard to produce his sacrifice for God. Remember, his sacrifice was of the works, uh, the, the produce of the soil. So he had worked hard for that. It says he worked hard with his hands to produce it. And he hated his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's. But he accepted Abel's. And Abel's sacrifice was a sacrifice that he, he did not work hard for at all because it was a lamb. And he, and he didn't produce it. Uh, He didn't cultivate it like Cain cultivated his. And so Cain murdered his brother over this idea of grace. Uh, It it was uh, over this idea that God would accept someone, not on the basis of what they had done, but on the death of another. This is an atrocity. How dare God accept someone on the basis, not on the basis of what they had worked for for him, but on the basis of, I mean, I'm more worthy. I'd worked harder for my sacrifice I have sweat on my brow and Abel's just coming like after a good long nap with a lamb, like hadn't worked for it and sacrificed it. This is exactly why Cain murdered and it starts right there, Abel, and this is exactly wh- how it begins. Right after the fall of sin, uh, it, it's already here. There's a law person and a grace person and they clash and there's hatred and ever since it's been happening. It happened with David and Joab. It happened with, again, Cain and Abel. It happened with, this is the reason why Jonah Um, hated, had problem with God with the Ninevites because Jonah thought he was better than the Ninevites. You know, I don't want God to show grace to people who don't deserve it. I deserve it. And so he was angry and upset. Um, It's there as well. It's in the Pharisees in the New Testament, like we were talking about. It's, I mean, and then it's just steamrolled forward, you know. Uh, Another illustration that might help, it's kind of related, kind of not, but... um, you guys know when the feds recently announced college debt forgiveness so again um, people didn't necessarily christian or not didn't necessarily like ooh, you know that's warm fuzzies time right like that's like that's a problem because grace is a problem like some people loved it because they needed it and that's great but a lot of people you know like me i didn't get it so people are like well that's not fair and they thought you know i worked hard to pay off my college debt right? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you did? Um, This is where the tension, and this is not a political statement. I don't, maybe it's, maybe it's not good economic policy or whatever to to give all that money out. I I don't know. Uh, You can agree with that. You can disagree. I don't really care. I care about the theology and I care about the angst and the irk and the unfairness that you feel when a bunch of people get something free from someone and you don't. And you worked harder than the person who got it. This is what we're talking about. See how that feels? Ever since the dawn of time, this has been since Cain and Abel, ever since the dawn of the New Testament, since the the days of Jesus especially, the era of grace, this has been why Christians have been uh, persecuted or hated. There's other reasons too, of course. We talked about some of them. I don't want to dismiss those, but this is the biggest one. This is why Jesus especially was crucified and pushed against. His break with the law to bring in grace to people who, who didn't deserve it. So where you see this in today's passage um, is in verse 19. He says, again, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So again, um, he's saying, I chose weak people. I chose uneducated young fishermen uh, un, who were unworthy but chosen none, nonetheless. But the strongest and the most intelligent were passed over. And so it's just this idea of like, that doesn't seem like in a worldly sense, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like, you know, the, the world looks at the most worthy, the ones that have worked the hardest, the best resume, and says, you get the most money, you get the, the place at the conference is, you get the biggest house probably or, or whatever, but it's completely flipped with Christianity. It's it's, when Jesus comes into the world. He picks people that are weak, uneducated, unworthy, simple-minded, sinful. Don't deserve it. And again, because grace is unfair, it doesn't come in response to what we've done. Uh, Verse twenty-four also says, um, "If I had not done among them the works that no one else did." Um, Look at those last few words there, Jesus. You know, when Jesus came into the world. He did not do things that we could copy on purpose. You know, he did some things we could copy, um, but he also walked on water, you know, to name a bunch of stuff. Like, he, he didn't do things that, that um, and this is hard for people, who are, who are all of us are this way in a sense, but I'll just say hard for the world who's proud and who wants a teacher Jesus to just tell us how to have a, a better life and how to live a good life now and to, and, to, and to be the change, you know, or something. This is hard when he's walking on water. Because you're like, you're like, oh, well, I could maybe do a couple of things you said there, but I can't do, you know, I can't do that. Sort of like in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is, says, um, you know, uh, Moses said, don't commit adultery, and you thought you've done it because you've never slept with another person other than your spouse uh, your whole life. But then he says, actually, though, what I'm saying to you is something even different. It's saying if you've ever thought about someone in, in an adulterous or lustful way, you've already done that in your heart, and you're just as guilty. And so, again, so there's kind of this thing with Jesus where he's saying, you can think you can do what I'm saying, but that's actually not the point. I'm doing the impossible so that all you can do is receive from me, not copy me. All you can do is receive from me. And that's hard, uh, again. And also in verse 2, he says things like this. He says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And so, again, um, the last few words are important here. I, I think the idea is those who are bent on serving God, who think that it's possible to serve him, I mean, ultimately, to, to be a servant of him, to do things for him. Those who are bent on serving God are murdering those who proclaim how God has served us. Uh, the, the ancient Anglo-Saxon uh, theologian, um, Be the Venerable, uh, says this in commentary on this passage. He says, those zealous for the law thought they were doing a service to God when they were murdering the heralds of grace. Again, like Cain, like Joab, like the Pharisees, um, the story keeps being told. Um, Those zealous for the law, zealous with the thought that we can really do enough good for God, that, that ultimately my faith is about something that I produce with the works of my hands, like Cain, um, you could say the ancient forefather of legalism, you could say is Cain. Well, it's Adam and Eve, but it's Cain. Um, in, terms of, in terms of like a juxtaposition, the' two, two testaments and the brothers. Cain is the Old Testament. Um, ever since then, th- this has been the, the clash, and Christians have been being murdered literally or phys- literally or figuratively, like Abel uh, ever since. So then the question becomes, uh, in light of all of that, um, you know, well, what next, right? How does Jesus help us underneath the weight of this? maybe may be hard to receive teaching. Um, there are two things. Uh, one, he will send us the Spirit. This is huge. Verse 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Okay, this is the great consolation to people who um, are going to be murdered or people who are destined to die or even on a lighter level but still serious level of I'm hated at work every day for my faith or, or anything in between. This is the great consolation. I will be with you. Um, the word helper here is um, actually can be, tra- like if you guys have different English translations out in front of you, there's actually like four or five different words this gets translated as, which it, you might think that's actually not that helpful, and that's actually what I thought. Uh, like Spence and I had all of our Bibles out this week, and I'm like, Spence, look at this. He's like, yeah, this one's different too. Um, it, it was, uh, it, it's, it's translated helper here in the ESV. It's also translated in other English translations, things like comforter counselor or advocate or even other things. Um, The the Greek word is paraclete um, and it means someone who comes alongside someone else. And so you can understand that how we'd get different words then for this, right? Because advocates, comforters, counselors, helpers, they all come alongside someone else in different ways, right? But but here's what you should do. doing. Come across something like this like linguistically in Greek or even if you don't uh, know that, that doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, the point is not to say, oh, you know, um, four of these translation committees, committees were out to lunch, they got it wrong, which is the right one and we kind of kill ourselves over this. Um, actually, the point is to say it can kind of mean all of them. Like John is very, the Bible's nuanced and layered. John is definitely this. The point is the spirit is all of these things to us. Uh, the spirit is... Um, our comforter when we're in despair he the, the, the spirit is the one who bears witness about Jesus to us he reminds us of how great Jesus is I mean every time you think about Jesus in your life and thought about him in this great capacity or, or in a worshipful way that's been the spirit's job the spirit's done that that's the spirit going to work and making much of him in your mind was that cool like you ever wonder like Man, is the spirit at work in my life? I'm not speaking in tongues or something. You know, ridiculous. Like, I won't say ridiculous. Uh, Just saying, like, that's that's an extreme. Like, okay, how do I know the spirit's at work? It's actually simple things. Like, am I thinking about Jesus? Even right now in this room, as I'm making much of Him, that's the spirit working. He's at work in your life. He loves you and wants to be and wants to make Jesus famous. Uh, But also, the spirit will help us to be. He's be. He's our helper. He'll help us to be courageous. Um, and to continue our witness um, in our life and to not fall away from him. But also to be our advocate. He'll advocate for us to the Father when we sin or when we feel like we're not keeping this passage that well. Like, this is a part of the passage where you think, okay, Jesus promised suffering. Am I suffering that much? Does that mean I'm not living out my faith that much if I'm not being persecuted? And we start to kind of wrestle with that. Or we think, I was persecuted, but I didn't handle it that well. And we start to crush ourselves with those thoughts. We get crushed by them. Um, because Jesus seems to say here, he's going to like help us to be a witness. Um, and what I would say to you is, don't be crushed by those thoughts. I, I think the idea that, that, that Jesus says, I'm sending the spirit to be your advocate, to put his arm around you and say, he's okay, she's mine, um, is to say we are okay with God no matter how well we sort of live this out and do this. That's why we need to know he's the advocate. God's Son and His Spirit advocate for you before the Father. God Himself is working to this end so we can be at peace. But this is massively important to see. Um, I'll just say it this way, kind of broadly speaking. What keeps us from falling away in the midst of hate or persecution is Jesus Himself. What what keeps you from falling away from God, speaking to Christians now, is In the midst of hate, persecution, suffering, despondency, anything, is Jesus himself. It's the spirit of truth. It's God. Endurance, your endurance, is his job. That's what this is saying. Isn't that incredibly relieving? Your perseverance, every day that goes by that you stay a Christian, God has been at work. I mistakenly said first service, Jesus is punching in and punching out. I didn't mean to say, because he never punches out. Uh, but he's punched in all the time. Like he's constantly at work, ensuring that you finish your race. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Um, th- this says that Christians are being carried, we're being lifted, uh, we're being moved towards. Uh, Christianity is not a, a kind of this punctiliar this moment in our life of conversion where we respond to an idea and then we show God if we really meant it by how we live. That's how Christians live almost all the time. If you, if you are, you're in good company because basically all of us do until the gospel corrects us and says things like this to Christians. The, the God who began a good work in you the day you became a Christian will continue to be at work uh, by the Holy Spirit, showing himself beautiful to you and worthy of trust. And your act of trust itself will come because he first gave himself over for you and pulled up your, the blinders in front of your eyes. I mean, it's his work that st- keeps us saved. It's his words of foresight, consolation, and promise that keep us Christian, not our works of righteousness. Or from last week or the week before, he's the vine. And we're just the dead branches. So he's the life. All right, then the second thing uh, I would say that gives us consolation here is um, when Jesus says, know that the world hated me before it hated you. So whenever Jesus says things like this, you know, like if someone um, told you this like on a human level, like I've been through that too. That might be kind of like, oh, there's some consolation there, right? Like someone else has been through this and maybe worse and they're telling me it's going to be okay. I think that's part of what he's doing, um, but I think it also insinuates that because Jesus has been through hatred and more hatred than we are, we will ever experience, and 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 he's the like first fruits. It insinuates that our sufferings aren't tests. So by that I mean, um, if God never went through what we're going through if he never became human himself in order to die for us, then it would be easier to conclude that how we deal with our trials is the entire point of our faith. It'd be much easier to go there in our brains, uh, whether you have or not, I don't know, but it'd be much easier to go there, that God is watching us to see how we do. But because God suffers too, because he's hated too, it changes everything. The purpose then of our suffering becomes to point beyond itself to something else, or, or better yet, someone else. We've actually seen this already in this series where Jesus says, uh, let your love for each other, Christians, put my love for you on display. That's the point of why Christians should love one another. It demonstrates physically, in almost a sacramental way, a spiritual vertical reality because they're connected. And that Now he's saying the same thing, but just with different topics. Like he's saying, your suffering and persecution, Christian, at the hands of the enemies of God, the enemies of Christianity, will put my persecution on display. It's meant to mimic it, to, uh, to let the world see it a little bit with their physical eyeballs uh, as they hear it from the mouths of Christian preachers and evangelists and uh, every, all Christians. That's the point. Um It's almost like our suffering is the ripple effects of the splash of the crucifixion 2,000 years ago. And so then if you look at the passage, you see this. When when Jesus says, he he pivots and talks about himself all the more. Like in verse 25, he says, But the word that is written in the Old Testament, he calls it their law, must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. And he's quoting Psalm 35 and 69, both of which reference the psalmist being hated without cause So it implies implies innocence, right? And that's something that you and I will never have, like innocence. We're all guilty. Um, Now, in Christ, we're pure and innocent. But in ourselves, we'll never have that. And so you kind of see this, like, bigger things being, like, alluded to here. um, And it's Jesus. And as you look at the Psalms in question, Psalm 35 and 69, I think I mentioned this last week or the week before, but whenever, like, a verse of the Psalms mentioned, uh, click on it. Because usually more in that psalm in question is being in the white space alluded to than, than, is, than is being directly quoted in the actual passage, if that makes sense. Uh, psalm 22 is a great example of this. Um, but these are examples as well. And so I, I say that to say that in Psalm 35 and 69, as you look at them, they make reference in other places uh, to Jesus' sufferings on the cross. Uh, And so that we might all the more understand, though we don't necessarily need it, uh, per se, um, we understand all the more that the ultimate way Jesus is going to be hated is when he's crucified. Uh, But it says things like this, three quick things. Uh, It says in Psalm 35, I bowed my head in affliction, which is the exact word John 19 uses when it says Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Same word. Or um, in Psalm 69 where it says, For my thirst they gave me sour drink, which is exactly what happens to Jesus on the cross when he's offered sour wine uh, to drink right before his death. Remember that, in the hyssop branch when it's held up to him. Or this idea in Psalm 69, 9 of uh, the reproaches of those who approach you, speaking about God, have fallen on me, the psalmist. This is the psalm of David. David and Jesus are very connected. Uh, in, in the Bible, and so ultimately, this is about him. Uh, it's, it's basically Jesus saying, those who have reproached or sinned against God, those have fallen onto me. Like, I'm bearing the punishment for sinners reproaching God or sinning against him. It's, it's classic substitution language uh, in, in the Bible that we see so much of. Actually, this, this uh, last verse, do you guys know where that's quoted elsewhere in the, the New Testament? So it's a famous, uh, actually, citation. In Romans 15, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church and he quotes from Psalm 69 that exact verse and likens it to Jesus as well, uh, encouraging the church uh, in in that way. So, kind of cool. Point being to all of this. um, More important than understanding how all of this applies, like, individually to your life because it won't all apply the same way. And as as you noticed, Jesus or John don't get specific. And there's a reason for that. I think that one reason is so it can apply to all kinds of different situations. Um, but two, I think the point to that is, is to say that there's something more going on here than just us. And so more important than understanding how all this applies, uh, like, like we talked about, though all that is important to talk about, which is why I took the scenic route to get here. Um, but seeing how Jesus quotes the Psalms here reminds us that this is more about Jesus than us. And it it tells us that this broader principle of how um, hate and persecution and death um, are an indispensable part of the expansion of God's kingdom. Uh, I I would say that that God himself being hated unto death for us for our sins is the core of Christianity. Because if Jesus didn't die, there would be no hope for those of us destined to die. If God didn't become a human and die in our place, then those of us who are going to die, what hope do we have? Um, God hasn't been a forerunner. He hasn't bared death itself. It's still an enemy. It's still a threat. It's still out there, right? It's looming, it's lurking um, like the Grim Reaper. But Jesus tackled the Grim Reaper. Jesus killed the Grim Reaper. Like There is no Grim Reaper anymore. It's just him. And so, now that doesn't justify the hate as a good thing, um, of course, but it is to see how central Jesus is making the idea of pain, persecution, hate, uh, how central he's making all of that to his ministry and how God uses evil for good. And then out of that, Jesus is saying, the drama of my suffering will continue to be lived out by you, church. Not all in the same way, um, but it will. It will. The church will always, again, broad brush statement, but the church will always, in many and various ways, be hated because Jesus being hated by the world is central to the gospel, and we are His body. So I think Christians then can, you know, simultaneously affirm, my suffering's coming to an end someday, and I can't wait, and we can pray for relief even sooner. Um, that's a good thing. But we can also affirm that God can use my suffering and my persecution like he used Jesus's, to be kind of an open door for the gospel. Um, I remember watching a long time ago a video of a pastor of the underground church in China. Um, And he was asked, like, how can we pray for you? And he said, don't pray for the persecution to go away. Because God, the more that we're persecuted, the more the church grows. The more we bleed, the more people become Christians. See, when you hear that, you should think, if, if that like, alone is the issue, that could be a works thing. But if it's tied to Jesus, it becomes a gospel thing. Like, our b- spilled blood is tied with Jesus' spilled blood. And Jesus' spilled blood is what enables the dead to come to life. And so if the church is not bleeding, then the, the story's not being told. If we're preaching this but not living this, um, I don't want to make it too much of an if-then because sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes we have eras of comfort. But at the same time, like, There is purpose behind Christians being hated and persecuted. It's not like this, again, this massive left turn out of nowhere. Like God knows what He's doing and He predicted it. He intended it. Because we are reliving out, as the ripple effects of the splash of the cross, we are reliving out the story of Jesus. And that comes with rejection to our theology, to our way of life, uh, to our emphasis on grace, to our willingness to accept the worst of people, um, to our. Uh, secondary doctrinal matters maybe as well, like I mentioned before. Many reasons, but the core of which is we worship Jesus, the God himself who came into the world saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Here's the final angle on this, though. Jesus loved his haters. Uh, This passage is a, I will be hated, but then I will die for the haters passage. And all of us are the haters, or we were if we're a Christian, but I mean, we're, it's, it's our story. And so then the idea is uh, we should love our haters as well. This is, all of this theology today is, is where the idea of Christians loving your enemies comes from. This is kind of the, the source. It's the, it's, it's the nucleus or the power kind of behind that, that command. Um, Because notice here, um, there's no vengeance in this passage. Jesus isn't saying, I'm telling you this is going to come, it's going to happen, be on guard and get ready to take up arms and fight back. Like, that's Joab, to go back to Joab. That's Joab stuff. But Joab's not not Jesus' ancestor. David is Jesus' ancestor. Jesus came through David, the restraint giver, the patient one, the loving one, not the vengeance seeker. So therefore, that says God's not a vengeance seeker. I mean, vengeance is coming in the end when he comes back. Uh, hell is a real thing. But this is an era of God's patience. It's an era of grace. It's an era of um, ingathering to people who don't deserve it, even people like you and me. And so when we don't love our enemies, you know, we, we send the wrong message about God's love and grace. We wrongly communicate that their hate is the unforgivable sin. Or that God has only died for his friends alone, but not for his enemies. Uh, which is another way of saying we're saved by works. It's an, another way of suggesting with our actions that we're saved by working hard to become God's friends. And therefore God will um, adorn us with salvation. Uh, that's what happens when we don't love our enemies. We send, we send the message of you need to work hard then to, to become a Christian and be worthy enough to be in my life, or worthy enough to accept God's love, or worthy enough to come to church. It's all the wrong messages, right? It's the opposite of Christianity. It's every other religion, but that's not Christianity. But as it is, um, you know, if I were to summarize it this way, maybe I'd say, but the the opposite's true. Jesus says, um, to survey all this again, Jesus says, I am the true Abel, killed for exemplifying grace. And the true David, showing love and restraint to those who hate me. For it's by grace that you are saved, not the works of your hands, by love, not by duty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, for the the sweet, nourishing reminder it is uh, for those of us um, who are Christians, and maybe the best news um, that... uh, some of us have heard for the first time as well in this room. I don't know, but it's uh, news nonetheless, uh, like bread for the Christian and the non-Christian to nourish themselves on. Um, thank you, God, for your grace. That's unfair, uh, but it was unfair to you, Jesus. You unfairly died so we can be unfairly saved. That's the core of Christianity, that if you, we lose that, we lose everything. It's just a, it's a straw man, a papier-mâché hat. It's, it's crushed under the weight of every inquisition, uh, every question, um, every bit of suffering we go through, everything, every sin we commit and kind of feel guilty over, it's crushed. Without a God who advocates for us himself, uh, without a God who replaces the Old Testament that he wrote uh, with his son, we have no hope. Absolutely no hope. Um, So thank you, Father, for this message. Even kind of in the weeds in the muck of this message, this um, darker twist on this discourse of being hated, uh, we thank you that we can at least think about you. We don't know how it's going to appear in our life or the life of our church, um, but we do pray for opportunities to love our enemies, but we pray especially for opportunities to herald the good news of a God who loved his enemies, us, unto death, and who showed restraint that was mind-boggling and offensive to the world, the Joabs of the world, but was nonetheless gloriously true. You insisted that it would be true, and we praise you for that. Your love, your grace, your mercy truly is the most powerful force in the universe, and we pray you'd help us to bask in it this Christmas season and, and beyond. In Christ we pray, amen.